Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Police-involved shootings are most often the way the agency known as COPA makes it into the headlines in Chicago, but that's far from the only way, and the work of the Civilian Office of Police Accountability is perhaps more intricate and challenging than you might think. This weekend, we sit down with COPA's chief. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. My guest this weekend is Andrea Kirsten, Chief Administrator of the Civilian Office of Police Accountability. She is the relatively new COPA chief, but she's been part of COPA's leadership team for the last five years or so. Ms. Kirsten has been Deputy Chief Administrator, Chief of Investigative Operations, and she helped establish the Spectral Victims Unit here. And by here, I mean we are conducting this interview at COPA's offices. Andrea Kirsten, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, sadly, we need to start by talking about a police shooting. You and I are speaking on Friday after the Chicago Police Board decided not to uh, concur with COPA's recommendations in the foot chase and fatal shooting of Anthony Alvarez in Portage Park. Uh, COPA recommended that Officer Evan Solano be possibly fired. The police board heard the case and decided to go with uh, Police Superintendent David Brown's choice of a 20-day suspension. Uh, I read that this is the first case heard by that particular police board member. Um, Would you say this is a case of the system working or not working? Well, I think it's a complicated answer. Um, First of all, I want to just sort of point out the fact that Um, In any of our recommendations, uh, the superintendent always, of course, has the opportunity to review um, and weigh in on whether he agrees with those recommendations. When there is a disagreement, um, cases have to be resolved um, through what's called a non-concurrence process. So the rules surrounding that process are set out in COPA's ordinance um, in the Chicago Municipal Code. And the way that it works is if we can't, if the superintendent and the chief administrator of COPA can't reconcile their disagreement, as occurred in the case of Uh, the fatal shooting of Anthony Alvarez, then one member of the nine-member Chicago Police Board is randomly selected to review um, both COPA's recommendations, uh, which are included in our summary report of investigations, the superintendent's non-concurrence letter, and COPA's response to that letter. So in the case of Anthony Alvarez, which was uh, heard last night, uh, it was one member of the Chicago Police Board who, in his review of of all of that evidence and those arguments, did in fact uh, 
weigh in on the side of the superintendent, and so therefore the case will not advance to a full hearing. Um, what I think is important to point out about that is that, you know, it kind of sets the city up for having cases of high consequence, a case where there was a fatality at the hands of law enforcement, um, where there's a disagreement between the investigative agency, which is of course COPA, um, and the superintendent uh, really being decided by one individual. Um, and that's absent a full evidentiary hearing as you would have if a case were to advance to the police board. Um, so I think it's an interesting time for us as a city to examine whether those rules and that part of the system um, are appropriate or need adjustment. Do you feel that in cases that are either high profile or, or you know, high impact, uh, that there should be a full evidentiary hearing? Um, I think a full evidentiary hearing provides the greatest level of transparency for the public. Um, you know, even even when a full ev evidentiary hearing results in an exoneration of an officer, which often happens, um, some of those were announced last night as well at the police board, it, it at least uh, provides for the public, should they choose, you know, to examine the facts, a full and complete record of what, what evidence was presented when making that decision. Um, having a one-member panel conduct a paper review of the file, um, and yes, he put forth his, as they all do, um, justifications in a, a written work product that's available on the, on the police board's website. Um, but still, that's without the benefit of the public hearing live testimony. That's without the benefit of um, typically in a, in a use of force uh, case like this. Both sides, the, the officer's side as well as the city's side, will engage in outside uh, experts, use of force experts. And so that testimony gets to be fully examined and vetted. Um, and then again, the full complement of the investigative work product and evidence that went into our recommendations can be vetted. Um, that doesn't occur when you have a one-member um, opinion that's, that uh, can ultimately shut down a case like that without the full process. I'm curious, what kinds of cases do get full hearings before the police board? Well, so the way that the rules are set up, um, anytime there's a significant recommendation of discipline that the superintendent and COPA agree on, uh, particularly separation or termination from the department, no matter what the kind of misconduct, if the consequences are severe, it has to go to the police board uh, for an evidentiary hearing. I think something a lot of Chicagoans probably don't understand, and, and maybe even some officers, um, is that the superintendent his or herself is not unilaterally empowered with the ability to terminate an officer from the force. Um, often you'll see in the media and other jurisdictions, other states, there will be a controversial issue that arises, public outcry, and almost an immediate follow-up that that officer has been, you know, relieved of their office and is terminated from the department in whatever state or city. That's not possible in Chicago due to the, the collective bargaining agreement and the due process rights that are afforded to officers. So all of the cases where there are serious penalties that are being recommended have to proceed to the police board for a full hearing. And then it's the police board that ultimately decides. The nine-member police board can agree with the superintendent in COPA and terminate an officer. They could disagree with the findings altogether, exonerate an officer, or they could agree that there was misconduct but recommend a lesser discipline. And you see all manner of those outcomes, you know, month after month at the police board. Hmm. Now, the Chicago Police Department didn't have a workable, or at least what a lot of people would consider a workable policy on foot pursuits uh, before 
the the case of uh, Alvarez or that of Adam Toledo, who uh, died in a police shooting just two days earlier than Alvarez. Uh, it does now. Uh, what would that mean for cases going forward? Uh, does that change the landscape for what you were dealing with was pre-policy? Does the landscape change appreciably now? I think the landscape always changes as we institute reforms and we revise um, police directives and, and general orders. Um, but I, what I think is important to understand is that, you know, throughout recent history, as, as there have been calls for greater and greater reform, a lot of these changes have been implemented in the department's use of force policy, you know, um, highlighting language um, for, you know, uh, uh, the sanctity of life and de-escalation techniques, making those things baked into a use of force policy. And the, the struggle that I think um, the community often feels, uh, you know, when, when it comes time to evaluate a controversial shooting is that uh, the application and making those words meaningful in policies, as opposed to sort of hollow answers to calls for reform, but actually holding officers to those standards, that's where the, the real difficult work of reform kind of comes into place. So, you know, I, I am excited about additional um, measures such as the foot pursuit policy, but I think the true test of any of those kinds of efforts comes down to when you have to apply the policy to a particularly difficult set of facts and, and holding those, those standards um, to account. I would also think uh, some of that test has to do with how police officers themselves are able to, uh, willing and or able to implement those things when the decisions are split second. Uh, you know, I spent much of uh, the day looking at the, uh, the uh, case of the 13-year-old, of the uh, and we're going to talk about that as well, uh, carjacking suspect. Uh, that video came out this week as well. And you know, I looking, you know, you slowing things down and looking at them or even seeing what they look like in real time, I think hammers home that police officers are making split second decisions. And isn't that the other big test? Of course. And I think, you know, what reform advocates and and, you know, people who are pushing for changes to policing, what it is I think we're really asking for is um, more informed decision-making leading up to those split-second uh, choices that officers are oft often confronted with. You know, there's um, sort of a saying that um, gets used a lot, and it's not to say it's untrue, but that officers run towards danger, and that's, that's what we ask of them as, as a community. And they do so with great bravery in many instances. But I, I think what police reform is really getting at is asking officers um, to assess danger as they approach it, to make calculated and uh, careful decisions based on their training um, as opposed to instinct and so that that's a challenge and it, it's one that um, you know really begins with a revised approach to training for officers as well and that's what the principles of our consent decree are really driving home in the way that the independent monitoring team for our consent decree is evaluating uh, Chicago's progress under the consent decree and and that those principles of you know 
policy and training being the foundational elements to reform, they don't just apply to the police department. That's Those are COPA's responsibilities under our provisions of the consent decree as well. It's how we as a leadership team here are approaching um, you know, training and readiness for our staff, uh, making sure that our policies are rooted in the principles of the consent decree and our training reflects that. We're not checking boxes, but trying to really embody the change that's being asked of us as well. And I think that's what the community is looking um, to see more of the Chicago Police Department demonstrating as well. Mm. Who's charged with uh, looking at these kinds of situations and saying, you know, maybe we should do this differently? I mean, who, uh, who gets to help with the fine tuning? Uh, that's a great question. So, I mean, I want to separate a couple things. We have obviously our our um, important investigative obligations, and so we have investigative and legal and quality management staff that look at every every individual misconduct allegation or notification of an officer-involved shooting, whether or not misconduct is alleged. Right. So you have investigative and legal folks that are tasked with deciding individual outcomes on individual cases, and then we have policy research and analysis function as well, um, where we have data folks who are able to take sort of an aggregate look at, okay, well, this happened on this this day in this instance, but what is it really saying more broadly um, about policing or about the communities that are being policed? And so uh, we're really excited in this upcoming budget cycle. COPA has asked for additional resources to build out that unit so that we can continue um, to make important recommendations uh, to the department. There are a lot of voices in Chicago between um, the Office of Inspector General's Public Safety um, IG, uh, the newly formed commission, um, the Civilian Commission for Oversight of Public Safety, uh, as well as COPA. There's a lot of voices that have the ability and the authority to make those kinds of policy recommendations to the department. But what's unique about COPA is we sit on top of in all of these misconduct investigations. So we have this set of really important information um, that I think makes our recommendations sort of rooted in real life experience um, from people who are interacting with the police. And I'm excited about our budgetary requests for the 2023 budget to fully sort of live into the potential for what those kinds of recommendations and, and reform suggestions can look like. You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and I am talking with Andrea Kirsten, Chief Administrator of the Civilian Office of Police Accountability. And I would love to take credit for the timing of our interview, um, but no, it's just by chance. Not only are we talking uh, after the action of the Chicago Police Board, but we're also talking the day after the family of a 13-year-old carjacking suspect released the videos of his shooting in South Austin. And it was not COPA that released that video, although in many cases COPA does. Uh, and that had to do with the nature of the case. Uh, uh, You've publicly been staunchly in favor of more transparency in in this agency, but uh, I think that case proved it's not always that easy or that simple. Can you talk about how that uh, that came down? And and I prefaced this by saying that when I did talk to the lawyer for the family, the very first statement he made when I talked with him was to say that he greatly appreciated how COPA handled the case, even though. You had to tell him no when he asked for the uh, for the uh, video. Uh, yes, uh, so I think it's important context and history matters. Uh, Copa 
went, came into existence and calls for a change in Chicago civilian oversight came into existence over what was viewed as the suppression of video evidence of the murder of Laquan McDonald. So core to who we are as an agency are principles of of transparency. Trans transparency is a cornerstone of any sort of public trust. And if we don't have transparency, we're not going to make a lot of progress as an agency. So having said that, um, it's important to understand that COPA is tasked with um, uh, the the city's video release policy. So the city of Chicago has a video release policy requiring videos of officer-involved shootings, fatal vehicle pursuits, deaths in custody, um, any sort of police-involved fatality. Uh, we have an obligation, because under the city's policy, to produce all of the video evidence that is associated with any one of those incidents. And a lot of people don't know this, but in addition to video evidence, it's also any audio evidence, it's written reports, it's a, it's a plethora of information. And we have a 60-day timeline to produce that information. And what we do is we post it on our website. And when we post the information on the website, it's a, it's a separate unit that, that posts this. It's not part of our investigative unit. It's a unit that we created last year in the, in the budget, actually, in order to make sure that we were lifting up the importance of transparency and being able to, to respond to these requests and requirements as quickly as possible. Um, but why I want to delineate sort of between transparency efforts and investigative efforts is that when we publish materials, we're not doing so with, uh, you know, a portending an outcome of an investigation or inserting our narrative or facts or what we think about a particular outcome. It's really uh, with unedited, except for privacy redactions, but unedited raw material for the public to, to digest and to make their own conclusions about. Now, what's unique about the case um, you know, involving a 13-year-old is that when, when it comes time to publish something like that, minors are protected under a state statute called the Juvenile Court Act. And the Juvenile Court Act specific, specifically prohibits the public release of information um, like this when a minor may or may not have been involved in some sort of criminal activity. And so there have, there's, you know, these are types of things that get litigated often, and so there's some case law that's precedential and, and guiding for us in these, um, in these decisions. But absent a court order, our COPA's, COPA's legal interpretation of the JCA is that absent a court order, we are prohibited from releasing that publicly um, because there was a minor child involved. Uh, now, that doesn't prohibit the family, as happened in this case, from submitting a Freedom of Information Act request, or a FOIA, as they're more commonly known. There's an exception in the JCA that videos like that can be released to the family or their representatives. That's exactly what happened in this case, and then my understanding is perhaps the family chose to make that information public, um, but it was not within COPA's ability to do so. And, uh, you know, COPA wants transparency, certainly, um, but there would have to be there would have to be in order for this case to have been something that we could put out on our website as we do all other police shootings there would have to be um, an amendment to the state law the juvenile court act allowing us to do so and that's something that's our conversations that are ongoing uh, with aldermen and other stakeholders as to whether a change like that would be appropriate um is a change like that needed or is the process that worked here uh because oh, it, it, it certainly the, uh, the it seemed it sounded like this was a, an effective workaround if the family wants something made public uh that isn't 
it's one extra step, but is, is that enough, or do you really need to change the state law? Well, I think that it worked here because the family was fortunate enough to have a really effective uh, legal advocacy uh, team, and not all families are similarly situated. Not all families understand uh, or have access to the kind of representation that was able to get this this video publicly released. Uh, and so I think that's, that's where my issue comes in, is that you want there to be equitable results, and in no way would we ever be advocating for the release of um, videos you know, involving a minor child absent family consent. It would have to be a family wanting it to happen. Um, but let's be clear, this video was made public by attorneys um, connected to the family. And I would want a situation where any family that wanted a video published would be able to have that happen through our transparency policy without having to take the additional step of hiring the right kind of legal team uh, to make sure that they get the attention um, that their case they feel their case deserves. Well, good point. And if your, your tenure uh, here has has, has been nothing else. Transparency has been uh, has been a running theme, uh, and and you also had a case that shows it can cut both ways. Uh, and it was the uh, and, and and that was where you told the city council the rules governing COPA's operations uh, may need to be adjusted to foster more transparency, but also discretion. Uh, and that was the uh, the case that cloud that hung over your your confirmation. Uh, obviously, the that the issue was paramount to that case. The uh, and that was the release of a report, including a recommendation of discipline for murdered police officer Ella French. And we covered that extensively. But uh, but uh, the report was written before French was killed. And uh, but. It was a really tough situation because, uh, at least under the law, the rules as I understand them, the report couldn't be redacted at the time. And isn't that another example of where you have to? look again at what you're doing and how it's being done. Absolutely. And the rules remain as, as written now that, that we would still have to release a report like that in the same manner. Um, we're working uh, with city council and others about how we might better address that going forward. Um, but what I think is important is, you know, me or COPA calling for the reevaluation of some of these rules, that's a product of the fact that First of all, these rules were written before there was meaningful civilian oversight, right? There were prede predecessor agencies, to be clear, um, but COPA, in the five years of its existence, has actually started to do the work that is expected of it, and now these rules are being tested. These are things that were designed before all of these scenarios came about, um, and so I think it's completely appropriate as we approach our five-year anniversary this coming September as an agency that we now actually have a body of work to reflect on and, and be able to evaluate more meaningfully as opposed to theoretically whether these are the right rules uh, for what our city um, is calling for and, and whether any changes are or aren't warranted with your five years here um what are can besides the rules on what can and can't be released what are some of the other areas that you think is are worthy of uh, of serious discussion um, I think that the city's collective bargaining agreements with its officers continue to be um, an area for for serious discussion. Um, there's been great progress made, and I don't want to take away from any of that, but I think uh, continued reform efforts are, are going to be warranted as those next contract negotiations um, are tackled. Uh, certainly that's not something COPA participates in directly, but um, we can speak to some of the challenges um, to living out the requirements of the CBAs. Um, and that's not to say that officers 
officers aren't, of course, entitled to due process rights. But we have to have a system where it, you know, it doesn't take multiple years to resolve um, these allegations. I think that that doesn't um, that doesn't serve officers or impacted civilians very well. Um, and we have to own the fact that COPA's investigations and the length of those investigations contribute to that timeline. Um, but there is a, a significant sort of, I like to refer to it as a downriver issue, that once we get through an investigation, we get through a non-concurrence, and then a case has to go to the police board, there's still a significant period of time where, under the rules, I can't release a summary report until the charges are filed before the police board. I can't talk publicly about what we did or did not recommend. In fact, I can't even share under the rules uh, the full summary report with an impacted party. And likewise, uh, the police department isn't able to serve officers with our summary report until much further in the process. So that's actually an area of sort of this reevaluation process where both COPA and CPD uh, and the Department of Law have recognized that making some some changes uh, to that may in fact be very warranted. And while those things are being uh, held up or, or considered, um, do we have cases where police officers are either still on the street with perhaps questionable performance uh, behind them or that they're not on the street <laughs> and, 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 and kept from doing their full jobs while these things are going on? You know, COPA always, we have within our ability um, the right to recommend when we think an officer should be reassigned um, to some sort of desk duty or to be relieved of their police powers. And th that often is what has occurred in most of our most serious cases where an officer is facing termination. Um, and likewise, when we start out an investigation thinking uh, that preliminary evidence would warrant something like that happening, but an investigation concludes in a manner that exonerates an officer, we have an obligation and do communicate back to the department about restoring um, an officer's ability to be on the street. Um, so we, we do our best to communicate with the department um, internally, but it's, it's what's lacking is that sort of public record um, because of the transparency uh, limitations around everything post, you know, resolution uh, of the investigation and pre-charges being filed at the police board hearing. Uh, can I add, I, I, I don't know the numbers of what the backlog used to be here, but I know it. You, the back Copa's back. I mean, in fact, even before it was Copa, it was Ipra. Uh, was horrendous. Uh, how is it now? <laughs> uh, so backlog's a tricky, uh, a tricky con concept, I suppose. Um, what I want to say is this. Um, so we have about 1,700 cases open currently at COPA. Uh, last year, we were pleased to be able to announce um, that last summer we closed the remaining uh, open IPRA cases because we still, even as of last summer, had some cases that remained open from our, our predecessor agency, so cases over four years. Um, we're underway right now um, addressing our oldest and aging cases, um, and we keep kind of shrinking the amounts of time it takes to conclude an investigation. Those are our markers towards progress. Um, so we don't have necessarily like the, the backlog, quote unquote, that we used to have of cases that we inherited from a different agency. Um, but we, the, the challenging work remains to stay on top of our caseload. And I do have to ask, uh, because a call came out from some city council members, a handful of them, uh, basically saying COPA should be abolished. Uh, and I don't think it's any secret that there are some people in, within even the police department among the rank and file who look at COPA as the enemy, the people looking over their shoulders, second-guessing them. 
What do you say to the public and to those officers about what you do? Uh, some of it is the, the, you couldn't be abolished, at least not without federal uh, permission. But uh, what do you say to those people? You know, it's hard for officers, I think, sometimes to understand or accept the role that COPA plays. Um, I think there's a fundamental you know, issue that many officers hold with the fact that civilians, people who don't do their job, are tasked with evaluating the way in which they do their job. And I often, in response to that, that notion, I have to say, I, I don't do this job because I've worn the badge, but in, in fact, because I haven't. Uh, this job, this, this is about coming at this work from a civilian perspective. That's intentional. It's, it's by design. Uh, it's a call to say that, you know, the, the police are the civilians uh, and the civilians are the police. We are connected. We are, we are one. And so if you're going to sign up to be a police officer in this city, that means that you're signing up for this, this aspect of civilian oversight. That's part of what our, our democracy looks like. That's how we make sure um, that our rights are being protected. And, and to, you know, to officers who feel that that's unfair and that, you know, we're not, we're not prepared for that task. I, I point to the depth of, of experience and background that we have internally at, at this agency, uh, the amount of training and resources that are devoted to making sure that our staff is prepared and, and ready to meet that challenge. And then also, I mean, we've talked a lot and extensively today about the complexity of, of this process. COPA, as a civilian oversight agency, is one voice in this in this conversation. We we make a recommendation, and so you know, despite what I believe is our true preparedness and readiness for the challenge of weighing in on these investigations, we still there's other checks and balances that are in place along the way. And so I, I really try to make sure that the general public and particularly our police force understands that. Um, that we want to be fair in how we evaluate this, but, but that I am not a former police officer doesn't disqualify me from doing this. In fact, it is my qualification for this job. That is going to be the last word for this, uh, this session. I would like to thank COPA Chief Administrator Andrea Kirsten for spending the time with us. To our listeners, if you'd like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website, wbbmnewsradio.com. There you can also find our podcast on radio.com. We'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, 105.9 WBBM. Odyssey celebrates Mother's Day, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time, baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world, screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.